Have we checked all the nice angles on the cameras as well that we look good? <laughs> That's very important. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? with me, Gemma Greaves, founder of Nurture and Cabal. This is a brand new podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. I honestly have been looking forward to this moment so much because today I get to do one of my absolute favourite things, have big conversations with amazing people. So why uncomfortable? Well, quite simply, I feel we don't have enough of life's difficult conversations. We tend to avoid getting uncomfortable. And let's be frank, you don't learn anything new by staying in your comfort zone. Before I ventured out and started my own thing, I was lucky enough to lead a global community of marketeers. And when I took the top job, I felt as an industry, we were not addressing the topics that truly matter. So through feeling brave myself and honestly massively vulnerable, we started an agenda to address the things that are considered taboos, but in my opinion, shouldn't be. From our mental health to race to topics that can truly hold us back, like that old and familiar imposter syndrome. And this snowballed into something bigger than I ever imagined, a global conversation where together we got uncomfortable about the important stuff. Honestly, creating safe spaces to talk openly and share our personal stories has now become a bit of an obsession of mine. I truly believe powerful storytelling is a catalyst for change. And I'll say it again till I'm blue in the face. I don't think we get uncomfortable enough. So when Richard and the team at Fresh Air approached me to make a podcast, I said I would love to as long as we can get uncomfortable which is where the irony kicks in as this whole process has made me uncomfortable and then some quite frankly I'm learning a whole new and unfamiliar world which yes has totally taken me outside my comfort zone but I am here today I am beyond excited to launch this series and chat to the most incredible guests who all have a story and who are all ready to sit uncomfortably so let's begin And today is extra special because I'm sitting here with my lovely and dear friend, the very brilliant Sophie Morgan. So Sophie Morgan, are you sitting uncomfortably? Always. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally so excited you're here. Sophie is an award-winning disability advocate, TV presenter and best-selling author. She's also one of the first females that is radically changing representation of disability. She's perhaps best known for presenting the London 2012, Rio 2016 and the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics. And she's now a regular on our screens as a Loose Women guest panellist. Sophie's also fronted her own Channel 4 series, Living Wild, How to Change Your Life, and has led groundbreaking documentaries such as Dispatches and Unreported World. She is a passionate campaigner, consultant and ambassador for various organisations and charities across the globe. It needs to be said, Sophie is a force of nature and perhaps best put in her debut book, Driving Forwards, which was absolutely excellent, by the way. 
I want to do extraordinary things, go to extraordinary places and meet some extraordinary people. I think it's fair to say she has done that and then some. Welcome, <laughs> Saif. <laughs> oh, I love, I love, I love you, firstly. But I just love hearing that because I did set out to meet extraordinary people and look where I am sitting here with you (laughs) thank you for having me (laughs) I am genuinely so excited you're here and when I knew I was doing this and and creating this new show I couldn't think of a better person to be our first guest so let's get uncomfortable let's get uncomfortable (laughs) exactly I feel like we've known each other forever but it was actually back in 2018 where we bonded over fangirling we did We so did. Isn't that the greatest way to meet? <laughs> Actually, I would recommend that to anyone. We were fangirling hard over Caroline Casey because yes. we were at this beautiful dinner. I can't remember where it was, a hotel, a really smart hotel Savoy, in London. I the think. Savoy, was yeah, it? Well yeah. done. And um, um, Caroline had just done an after-dinner speech. And for people who don't know Caroline and her work, she is an extraordinary disability advocate. She is a campaigner. And she was talking about her motivation her life her obviously her experience with her own disability and as a woman with a physical disability I was sat in that crowd with my mouth just wide open just staring at her listening to what she was saying and thinking oh my god I need to know this woman I need to know how I can be in her slipstream you know how I can be in her presence and then we had the privilege of of uh, well you were with her so I come and find you after dinner like I need to know you guys we need to hang out and that was that was that that was the beginning of it so yeah the rest is is history as they say yeah and and she is unbelievable and she's a future guest on this show which I'm really excited about of course she is she must be yeah yeah when I asked you to do this you said uncomfortable conversations are what you do on a daily basis from your stuff on loose women to dispatches that aired recently that I want to explore later and to daily life I think it's something that I lean into actively because to start with I think so I wasn't born with a disability I became disabled when I was 18 years old and I think uh, that basically living with a physical disability and using a wheelchair means that people just seem to be very uncomfortable around you right so whether you like it or not there's this conversations do become uncomfortable and I learned quite early on that there's an awkwardness around disability that I was going to have to like I said lean into or I was going to be in a I was going to feel uncomfortable right so I I I had to kind of get used to this discomfort around me and embrace it and use it and either so I think with the work I've done on telly which is sort of you know, like you said, dispatches, which are sometimes really challenging uh, topics. I've just made one about domestic abuse, for example, or yeah, on loose women. You know, we go into various subjects. The 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 thrill for me is actually right. Let's talk about things that people don't normally talk about. I really enjoy that. But in day to day life, like I said, it it just follows me around, and and I've learned to enjoy it now actually that if I can read the room you know when you get that gauge when you're like right I can feel there's an awkwardness here there's an elephant in the room and it's me so how am I gonna how am I gonna dispel is that the right word how am I going to you know manage this and I think that's something that people with disabilities actually have in abundance is a skill that allows them to intuitively read the room understand where people are uncomfortable 
and decide what they want to do with it. Do they want to help that person make them feel more comfortable or do they want to let them just feel uncomfortable? And I, I can certainly do that sometimes as well. <laughs> you can, I've I seen will. it. Yeah. <laughs> In certain bars when, yeah. <laughs> when there hasn't been as much accessibility as there should be. There we go, right? There we go. And uh, I, I remember very well the time when there wasn't the accessibility in a bar mm. and I had to hold a door open for you. Do you remember that? In the loo, yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. See, this is, the other, this is what I mean is that this, these awkward, difficult situations just follow you around in day-to-day life. And so I have to get very comfortable with the uncomfortable because like, we're mates, but at this point, you know, me saying to you, can you hold the loo open, the door open for me so I can go to the loo? These are conversations people don't normally have, you know, and, and, and actually... I've got so used to it over the last two decades of being disabled that my cage for what's normal and what's uncomfortable has long gone in some respects. For me, I I do tend to find myself going into the uncomfortable with people quite quickly. And, And there's an activist, a disability activist called Sinead Burke, who has dwarfism. And she speaks really articulately about the fact that her skills of communication have had to be heightened for because she's ha- she has to get used to asking people to do things for her. So, for example, I remember her saying the example of she can't reach the lock in the loo. Can somebody hold the door for her so that, you know, that it's basically they, they can stand outside and guard the door, much like you did for me. But she's been doing that her whole life or asking for certain, you know, for her needs to be met. And that's the same. I have to ask for my needs to be met by friends or by strangers. And in doing that, you, you, you develop this, this lexicon of of tools to be able to communicate what you need but also just get rid of these the 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 awkwardness you have to you've got no choice you have to just say the uncomfortable thing or you know put yourself in that place where the person that's surrounding you might feel a little bit awkward but you kind of almost have to go yeah it's not my problem I need I need I need your help so you're gonna have to give it to me or you know I need you to do something for me so yeah it's it's an it's an interesting lived experience for sure I think that's when you can start to make change happen. So, for example, that time in the bar, if I go back to that, and you might have told the the uh, barman that you were an undercover reporter. And- <laughs> Always. Why not? You <laughs> remember that scene in Notting Hill? <laughs> Do you remember where the woman in, in the film Notting Hill and she goes in and she pretends they're trying to get backstage and she's a wheelchair user and she goes in and she says, I'm with the such and such. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. And she, and she blags it. I do the same thing. I yeah. just, I'm like, no, I'm a... Well, I mean, I do actually do make dispatches for Channel 4, but I'll say I'm a journalist <laughs> and uh, you've messed with the wrong person. It's funny you bring that up, Jen, because I actually think that's one of the reasons I got into telly is, is I joke, but I do feel having that kudos to be able to say, no, I actually, I do work in television and there will be consequences to you treating me badly or treating me discriminatively or treating me um, in any way that isn't actually either legal or appropriate because so many disabled people run into these these examples like just, uh, lack of access you know attitudinal barriers that that stop them from just basically living their lives and when they want to advocate for themselves or speak up no one listens and they really don't and it's just yeah. like i think when i was 18 and i fresh freshly injured and i going into the world and i realized no one listened to me no one saw me no one cared but yet all around me was this whole new world of of impossibility it was just impossible I couldn't I I mean my first example of of really really difficult challenge was I came out of hospital and I needed I wanted to go to art school and when I got to art school I was told I couldn't I'd already got the place there before I'd had my injury and when I arrived there as a wheelchair user they said no you can't come now there's no access here 
And I remember reading that safe and it made my yeah, blood boil. Yeah, it was just one of those. You're like, hold on a minute, what? I can't come. And I, it was very eye-opening for me then to realise, okay, I'm going to have to learn how to fight. I'm going to have to learn what skills I need to be able to to make change. And I made them very uncomfortable. I made them super uncomfortable by flexing the law. You know, I quoted the Disability Discrimination Act at them and said, you can't do this. This is unlawful. By law, you have to make reasonable adjustments for people like me. And that's when I realised I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. (laughs) I'm going to have to have these fights. But that's okay. It, It does get tiring, but it is okay. But going back to my point earlier is the more I have a platform, the more I use television, the more I try and raise my profile, the more people will actually respond when I try and make that, you know, plea for change. And the more as a role model, you're going to encourage other people to fight. This is the thing, you know, we, we talk about the accidental activist, right? It's, it's, it's something that you don't necessarily, in an ideal world, the, the work that, you know, Caroline does, for example, or that I do, we shouldn't, we didn't, we wouldn't have to do it. There's, we wouldn't exactly. have to say, come on now, let's include disabled people, which is technically what we're, what we're advocating. We, sh- we shouldn't have to do that. And I do well, we shouldn't, but we do. So we fight and we use our voices and we try and we try and try. And, you know, we try to elevate other, other advocates and activists and campaigners are, that are trying to move forward. And it's all this constant, constant fight. But it, it is, of course, important to inspire more people to do the same thing. But I tell you what, it's tiring. It's yeah. really tiring. Um, but I think one of the things that is is so motivating about it is that actually you can instigate change, you can create change. And one of the things that became very rewarding, even though it was frustrating for me to constantly come up against these barriers, is that actually with enough pressure in the right place, having difficult conversations or flexing various laws or whatever it was that I was using in my armory of tools to fight against discrimination when it worked it's like yes get in <laughs> you know i'm like i i did something i changed something yeah okay wow then that motivates me and that and that's why i sort of never stop yeah spurs you on so i guess that's a perfect place to talk about your amazing book driving forwards <laughs> Thanks, which i was lucky enough to be uh, one of the first people to read it and i read it over a weekend and became very unsociable to my family <laughs> literally was captivating from the first page and no news i do i i wasn't expecting to find out so much more than i knew of you and actually what struck me was how raw mm. and open and honest I mean you literally bared all yeah literally I did I think <clears throat> I took a very deliberate approach when I wrote the book I thought if I'm going to be given an opportunity to tell my story I've got to tell it and I think as exposing as it is to talk about waking up in a paralyzed body aged 18 is actually like you know going through a car crash and all of that I just felt like I had a responsibility to tell the story truthfully and accurately. And at the end of the day, I think that's all we've got is our stories. And that's what we should use. Not necessarily just for empathy's sake, but I felt I've never read my story anywhere. I'd never read the story of a young girl whose life gets completely changed overnight and has her identity completely taken away from her and then has to reformulate it in the context of disability and what spinal injury 
and paralysis is actually like and how did her mum cope and I, I wanted to unpack all of that uh, as best as I could and yeah <laughs> it doesn't hold back um it doesn't hold back and certainly I, I love learning about people's lives and how they live them that's my favorite thing to do you're the same I know oh, I love it we love these uncomfortable difficult conversations yeah. that's why we're here so I, I that's I just put it in book form basically you know and you mentioned your mum there and it just makes mm-hmm. me think of your mum and dad at your brilliant launch party that I got to be part of. Got to be part of? You organised it. <laughs> <laughs> Small detail. It was oh. wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. But they're so, so proud of you. And I think they do sometimes think, why does she do all this yeah, stuff? Yeah, they do. <laughs> but, but in a way where they're so proud. Yeah, I think, yeah. And, you know, that's a motivator as well. I think I, I when I was 18 and I nearly died and nearly, you know, in the car crash, I nearly destroyed them and I think them helping me rehabilitate and helping me get back to life has been has taken its toll on them and I I often feel like I just want to do them proud I almost feel like I owe them for what I did we're we're long past that now there's no debt for sure they certainly hate me saying that but I feel it I didn't know who I was after I had my injury my identity was completely taken away from me and everything that I thought I was the girl I was before and then the girl I became afterwards and then the woman I became afterwards, they weren't the same. And I, I, I really struggled with reconciling my differences physically and emotionally with the young girl who wasn't disabled and the woman who was disabled. And, and so I didn't know who I was. It's taken me a long time. In fact, I've now lived 18 years disabled and 18 years non-disabled. I'm like, I know who I am now. And... I know what I want. I know what I want to do. I, I want them to know that I'm actually really okay and that things are good and I've, I've got myself to where I need to be and then some. So, yeah, I've, I get very, I'm very happy when they're proud. <laughs> oh, I think we can all see that and, um, and, and you've achieved so much and it's brilliant. I just want to say one caveat. You just mentioned what you did. It was an accident. No, no, I don't see it that way. I know that's a really uncomfortable thing to say. I don't see what happened to me as an accident at all. Yeah. I see it as a crash. I see what happened to me is a set of circumstances that a lot of young people find themselves in. So I'm not an anomaly. So many young people crash their cars yeah. within the first six months of learning to drive. Yeah. And I don't know what the figures are today, but about a decade ago, it was the biggest killer of young people driving. Yeah. And so, you know... I'm not alone in what happened to me. And I think in by, by taking ownership of the circumstances in which I crashed that car, it wasn't an accident in the sense that there were certain, there were certain things that were very much avoidable. I, you know, I was driving too fast and I was out of control. I didn't have much experience. and I had lots of people in my car who were drunk and distracting me. It was late at night. There was very little lighting on the road. It was, there was all these kind of it was like a perfect storm. It was almost like a textbook car crash, right? It was inevitable that I was going to crash that night, I feel. And so I don't see it as an accident. So when I say an accident, I mean you didn't do it on purpose. No. And you weren't drunk. No, I wasn't drunk. And I was seatbelted and, and all of those things. Exactly. Yeah. So I just think that we need to be kind to ourselves. I know <laughs> that what you've you've taken from it is 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 unbelievable and powerful in the way that you live your life. And actually, but it wasn't deliberate. Exactly. I completely understand. And, and I should be clear, I com- absolutely it wasn't deliberate. And it was uh, unexpected and all of those things that a car crash is. But it could have been avoided. And that's how I've gone on to help other young drivers learn from what happened to me so that they can avoid that from happening to them. So when we first met, you were on an absolute mission to change the retail space and, and the fashion world. 
people with disabilities felt they were welcome, they were accepted and they were recognised um, and they were being considered. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you did was you designed a uh, wheelchair mannequin mm-hmm. and got into lots of different brands. So I was about, I was in my early 20s and I was in sitting in a shop on Oxford Street in London. I was looking around me and I couldn't see anything that communicated the fact that someone with a physical disability might have been welcome, I suppose. I just didn't feel it. Certainly wasn't any models with a disability or anything, anything that communicated with someone like me. And I, as a result, went away and was like, what can I do to change it? What can I do? And I eventually came up with this idea that I could kind of work with mannequins because mannequins are meant to be representative of the customer as much as we know that they're not necessarily the shape and size of them aren't right (laughs) understatement (laughs) totally (laughs) but at the same time they are meant to be that that communication prop and so I decided to design a wheelchair for a mannequin it was a way for the shop to communicate with with customers and say look we we considered you and we we want to welcome you and and also it could act as a style guide for someone who is sitting down so whatever the mannequin was wearing you could see if it would work on you but um it was a real challenge and it was before things like the Paralympics and stuff. So attitudes to disability were really, really bad. I mean, not that they're great now, but they were really bad. And the, the, the general consensus was, why would we do that? Why would we want to work? What? Really? And I kept having to try and articulate like, there's a spending power here and, you know, disabled people exist and all this. Yeah. But it was just exhausting. And, and actually, I, I got treated quite badly. I got copied into an email from a major retailer uh, by accident, basically saying we'll never be seen to support disability in our windows. Get someone, get rid of her. Yeah, I bet they were embarrassed about the accidental copy. I don't know if they were, Jem, because I never got an apology, and I was so young and so. I think now I would have handled that very, very differently, but then I just went. Ow, and I just retreated. I stopped the project. I stopped the whole effort because I was too hurt. And then I, I did resurrect it for a time with a, a huge retailer in the US, but again ran into more struggles there and was treated pretty badly as well. And you have to have a very thick skin. And I think when it comes to working environments where you're trying so hard to try and instigate change and stuff, that that kind of these setbacks they can be really difficult to manage. Yeah. And so now I've learned where to apply my energy. And I'm making change in the areas that I want to. It's slow progress, but I've also learned I've learned I've learned the hard way that it's 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 difficult. It's very difficult. But I remember the frustrations. I remember being in New York with you and I mm. think you just had a meeting and obviously we're not going to name said retailer, but a rather large one. Yeah. Um and they effectively copied your idea. Mm-hmm. They took it. Yeah. And they the idea was kind of it was frustrating because I often see the intention to be inclusive by major brands and, you know, influential figures is to integrate disability in the right way. I know there's a lot of box ticking that goes on. And sometimes I'm, I embrace that box ticking. And I certainly I've, I know when I've been used to box tick. But it's okay if that furthers the agenda or if it gets me into a room or gets somebody into a room where we can have difficult conversations and make change. And that's that's okay. But when you can see that it's not authentic or perhaps real intention behind it, that drives me up the wall. And I see disabled people being used sometimes for a brand to just, you know, look look like they get it when actually on the ground there's still many, many problems. And I... 
yeah, it's a frustration. Yeah. It's a frustration. A bit of a labelling exercise and, and, you know, a tick in the box in the diversity and inclusion space, but actually not doing anything. And, you know, I'm pressing a little bit on this point because I think as business leaders mm. and brands, we need to do more. And I remember introducing you to somebody and they were so like, yes, we're going to do something. Again, not going to name, but they'll know if they're listening to this pod and then nothing. Yeah. Over the years, I've got so used to it that, I kind of just don't hear it anymore. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we're going to do something around that. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And you're like, oh, right, okay, well, okay. But I would, I would say that we are definitely in a better space than we have ever been. So, for example, let's take dis- disability specifically. When campaigns are being created that integrate disability, you can tell when there's a disabled person behind that. You can tell when there's been somebody in the room who knows what they're talking about, and you can tell when there hasn't been. And I think that as on the other side, as a consumer or somebody ingesting the messaging, whatever it might be, you can smell a rat when it's not done properly. And I think brands are aware of that now, or I hope they are. And so that's why we're seeing more and more disabled people in the rooms where decisions get made when it comes to, I'm talking about disability, but I think it it can be applied to anything when it comes Mm -hmm. to diversity and inclusion. If you could say one thing that you think brands should be doing differently because there'll be quite a few marketeers that will probably listen to this given you know backgrounds and all that stuff what should we be doing what should we be doing differently Sinead Burke who's a disability advocate often says that there's two great questions that you should always ask one is this accessible so whatever it is that you're doing whether it be a physical space or whether it be something online you know is your website accessible is the presentation that you're doing accessible do you have a BSL interpreter you know whatever it is right ask that question and the other is who's in the room or more importantly who's not in the room and I think those keep this in your mind and apply it to everything and the world will be a better place overnight so you mentioned that you fought against a lot of closed doors so actually you've used the power and the platform that you have developing your career and your profile and your tv presenting and all that good stuff to actually use that for good and it really feels that that you really are a trailblazer and you are really making a difference. I'm very proud of you, okay. can you tell? <laughs> and I might be stalking you on TV at the moment in, in advance of this uh, this uh, conversation. But, I, you know, I, I heard you on Loose Women and talking about the the appalling situation that we've got with travel and, and planes. Every time I go on an aeroplane, I have to hold my breath just with this, oh God, what's going to go wrong this time? It's such a lottery, gem. I mean... The challenges are many, <laughs> but in a nutshell, if you are a wheelchair user or somebody with a physical disability, flying is really difficult for so many different reasons. When you arrive at the side of an aeroplane, they take your wheelchair away from you and put it in the hold with the luggage and you're then plonked onto the seat, which is where all sorts of problems then can can occur. You know, you can't really get to the loo without having to ring somebody to bring a little aisle chair. And that aisle chair is, it's not self-propelling. Somebody else has to push it. It's very undignified. A lot of people can't even use it. It's, it's just not fun. The loos aren't accessible. And then damaged wheelchairs, lost wheelchairs. I mean, the list of problems goes on. The lack of assistance that doesn't turn up and you get left on an aeroplane for absolutely hours. I mean, I just, uh, just listening to myself talk about it just makes me go, oof, oof. my whole body language just goes, Bleh. it's just really depressing. It's really, and I would also add that there are an enormous group of people out there who actually literally physically cannot get on an aeroplane because they are not able to transfer 
from a wheelchair into an aeroplane seat. So they are completely left out. As a result, there's a lot of fear around flying, there's a lot of fear around travel, and we must change it. And sometimes I just think it's a case of a lack of awareness that this is what we're actually dealing with. I say that because I don't like to think that the people at the top are aware of what they're doing to us. And just ignorant. <laughs> and just ignorant. Yeah. I, they can't be. I think it's in the millions, if not billions, of, of pounds worth of damage every year that they would avoid if they just redesigned the aircraft so we can travel in our chairs. <laughs> simple. Well, there you go. Simple. That's a simple. <laughs> I can't ignore your brilliant documentary that aired recently, The Dispatches, where you really put a spotlight on the abuse mm in the disabled community and what I found so refreshing is unlike many documentaries you watch you started with your personal story. Mm. It was a difficult decision to make but much like I did with my book I was like right if I'm going to do this I'm going to do it authentically. There is a terrifying stat that if you are a woman with a disability you are twice as likely to be a victim of domestic abuse. That goes up to three times as likely if you have a learning disability. And informed by that stat and and actually having reflected on some of my past relationships whilst I was writing my book, I worked with Channel 4 on this dispatches on, you know, why is this happening? And I shared my own experiences with abuse and labelling some of the things that I had been through in the past as abuse was actually quite challenging because it's not a word that, you know, one uses lightly but also I've never really been very good at kind of considering myself particularly a victim of anything and that was something I didn't really sit well with me but I look back on some of the things that happened in my relationships for example having an argument with a boyfriend and that's one thing obviously everyone has an argument in their relationships but then them taking my wheelchair away and leaving me in places and at one time I got left in the sea for like four or five hours. I mean, that's like dangerous. Thankfully, I'm a really strong swimmer, but it was really dangerous. And and stuff like that, which when you isolate these incidents and you look at them outwardly, it's like this is specific to disability or, you know, having a partner put things in places deliberately that I can't reach. It's just cruel. It is cruel, but it's really interesting because of that stab that many more disabled people encounter abuse. You kind of think, well, is this happening to other people too? Mm. The truth of it is, is that actually the fact that I'm disabled and have a lot of internalised ableism, I tolerated a lot of just crap, basically. So I wanted to understand why and look at what else was going on. And then we really dug down into the, the reality for victims of abuse at the moment in the UK. And it's shocking. You know, there's only one specialist refuge in the entire country. One for 14 million disabled people. That's absolutely insane refuges in general aren't very accessible and then we unpacked a terrible story of police abusing a a, a deaf woman you know it was it's not very cheerful viewing but it it definitely shines a light into a, a subject that most people find really uncomfortable but also just genuinely doesn't get um airtime no one really talks about this it's very rarely talked about so I've never seen anything like it. And I was absolutely appalled, particularly when we're talking about, you know, a deaf person not able to communicate because the lack of education in the police and awareness and the fact that you're shining a light, the fact that you're tackling this, it's bloody brilliant. In the documentary, one of the women that we speak to, she explains, she's deaf and she explains that when when somebody handcuffs somebody, 
that's deaf, that takes away their ability to communicate. And you just think, oh my gosh, yeah. Those moments of, of awakening is why we tell stories, isn't it? That nugget of information could change so much for somebody. It's just just awareness raising. And you're so right, because when I heard that, I thought, how come I haven't thought of that before? Yeah, I was the same. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think that's, yeah, again, why we have to tell our stories and we have to, and we also have to listen, right? I think that's the other thing is, that's the joy of of telling these stories on television is that someone's going to listen. The thing that happened with that woman when she was arrested, she was in custody for over 20 hours without a BSL interpreter. So she couldn't communicate. You know, there was something about seeing her on television, telling her story and knowing that we're all paying attention to that, that I think is really powerful and needs to be done more that's why I, I just live for this representation of disability on screen because we have to pay attention to that she's she's telling us what's happened and I just feel there's an accountability there that that could have happened to her and very easily just been forgotten about but now no it's on television and it's it's in a dispatches and it's going to be widely watched and we've paid attention and it's just that kind of right cool Let's uh, make sure that doesn't happen again. You know, it feels like that. Who knows if it will happen again, but you just get this sense of, okay, right, we've documented it and we have, we're sharing it and, and hopefully that will have an impact. It will have an impact, but it also will happen again. We know it will. Yeah. Because that's yeah. just life. But hopefully it will happen less. And the more we raise awareness, the, the more we can do something. I don't know about you, but all of this is making me sit quite uncomfortably <laughs> in a way that's making me... Not, not that the studio's lovely, lovely chairs. <laughs> but actually, it, it's just incredible what what's happening behind closed doors and you surfacing that. And us talking about it now, if that can make one small difference, it's worth it, right? That's exactly what I mean. It's like, so, you know, we're talking about having uncomfortable conversations. I guess the next question is, where are we having those uncomfortable conversations? And if you're having them on television, like you have them on stage or we're having them here and people are potentially going to listen or watch, that's when change happens, right? And and I, I can't think of a better format. For for me, one of the reasons why I so sort of urgently embraced television when I was younger and I got the opportunity to work on television, I wanted more and more of it because I knew it was a place for me to tell stories or to share information and people would listen. And television is a great space to go and escape and be entertained and everything, but it's a great place to learn, obviously. And that's what... I want to use it for is to write, as I keep saying, have these uncomfortable, difficult conversations that make people go, ooh, I didn't think, didn't know about that. And that's what just, just what's evident in this whole conversation is all of your lived experiences, you're turning into how others can learn and a positive force. And I'm just sitting here going, what can I do? And I bet the <laughs> listeners will be sitting going, what can I do? How do we get uncomfortable to drive change? What What can we do? to make a difference well I suppose I learned that actually being a wheelchair user and a paraplegic and a woman with a disability I've learned a lot and I want other people to know what I've learned because 
I certainly had very, very, very limiting beliefs on what someone like me could do or could be. When I first met myself as a wheelchair user after I woke up paralyzed, I was so just, you know, this, you can't, there's so many things you can't do. And I had to redefine that for myself. And then I've gone out and decided I want to redefine that for everyone else as well. Because <laughs> it's really, you know, maybe take your limiting beliefs and throw them in the bin and help other people redefine what they think. Anyone can do that. And don't be afraid to ask for help. And I know that, yeah. you know, that's something that you could have done more of, even in our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know what, you're right. Don't be afraid to ask for help. But, and I'd also say, don't be afraid to ask questions. This is a, the theme of the podcast is asking these questions and getting uncomfortable and, and asking uncomfortable questions is so the way to grow and learn and change. You've got to be careful how you ask those uncomfortable questions and don't be rude and invasive. But if you want to learn and you want to change, you have to ask those difficult questions of people. You know, I'll give you a really good example. Often when I'm going down the street as a wheelchair user, if a mum spots me, this is really typical. A mum will see me coming, okay? And to, if she's got her little kids with her, she will see me. She'll go, <gasps> she'll go, kids, get out of the way. Get out of the way. And she'll get the kiddies and she'll pull them towards her or she'll, she'll clear the path for me to come past, okay? Which is really polite, which is really nice in many respects. But it drives me bonkers because what's happened in that moment is that kid has been made to feel that someone like me is, is very other, they get scared usually. They look at me going, oh gosh, oh, oh. And, and I'm like, I'm not going to run them over, you know? Anyway, the reason I tell you the story is because that's, somebody's trying to be polite there and it, there's all well intentions, but it's not a nice feeling for all involved, I'd say, for the kids and for me, because it just makes everyone really uncomfortable, right? One time, there's been one time in 20 years where this dad actually stopped me and he said, I'm sorry to bother you. If you've got time, can my son ask you a question? Yeah. And I stopped dead in my tracks. And I said to the kiddie, I said, what do you want to ask me? And the kid said, why are you in a wheelchair? And normally if a kid asks you that unprompted, the parents will go, shush, shush, don't ask her that. Sorry. You know, they will completely censor that kid, right? Almost embarrassed. Or embarrassed. I'm so sorry. Don't ask lady, you know, all that, right? Okay. And this is, this is a really lovely example because the boy asked me, why are you in a wheelchair? I said, oh, well, I hurt my back. He asked a couple more questions and then he got bored. And then we said, thanks very much. And off I went. Now, that is a prime example of what we need to do, I think, in general. I don't mean stop people on the street and ask them why they're in a wheelchair, but let your curiosity guide you and lean you into questions that take you into, into conversations that would be uncomfortable but are necessary for change. And I was so grateful to that dad because I think that kid will grow up with such a different perspective on what disability looks like and means and is and just take away the fear than the discomfort. And made it more accessible as opposed to thinking that... Scared. scared yeah. Don't ask. Don't talk to it. it that, you know, mum's doing that. They're meaning well. They're trying to be polite. They're trying to accommodate my needs. It's all well and good. But you know what I mean? There's a nuance there that makes that situation actually quite toxic because what's happened there is that now immediately a barrier between me and that child or those children that they're going, oh, that's somebody I need to jump out of the way from. Oh, I can't ask them a question. Oh, don't look at them. Oh, gosh, get out of the way. And for me, it's like, oh, now I'm this big monster that's going to run over your child. <laughs> it's a really perfect example of what we must not do. I don't mean 
um, move your children out of the way for people when they need to be. Uh, <laughs> it's more, that's a whole other point. That's a other point. You know what I mean? It's this lovely kind of breaking down of the way we engage with each other. Which is really making, and I'm really aware of time, but it's. I just want to um, just just make this point. Um, it's really making me think about. Do you remember the radio show? And it is before our time, but I remember um, very acutely uh, thinking, "What an incredible title! Does he take or does she take sugar?" Yeah. So my aunt uh, Marion, who's who's no longer with us, uh, had Down syndrome, and people instead of talking to her and addressing her, would ask me. Is she okay? Would she like a drink? Yeah. And I used to go, ask Talk yourself. She's sat here. Yeah. And I didn't ever understand that ignorance because I grew up mm. with that. But that is unfortunately what we see all the time around us. Yeah. And I've seen it when I've been with people that um, have disabilities. Mm-hmm. And it infuriates me. Oh, God. You and me both, babe. Drives me mad. And thankfully, my friends now know to say, you can talk to her. Like it happens to me often. I was in a hospital recently and it happened to me. I was asking for directions and the person I asked, I said, excuse me, can you tell me where such and such is? And she spoke to my friend. It's down the hall. It's down, and, he, and he went, no, 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 you can talk to her. And you, it, it, honestly, it happens far more than you realise. This is not an outdated trope. It actually still happens. So, And what do you do? Do you not just say, hi, I'm course, here? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Jam, of course. But it's just sometimes you kind of go, oh, God, do you know what? I haven't got, I haven't got it in me today to fight with you on this. All right, tell him and I'll, I'll, you know, it depends on the mood you're in. But often it is a case of, excuse me, I, you know, you can speak to me. Um, this is what I mean by the constant, constantly having to advocate, constantly having to remind people you have a voice and use it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, oh, it's, a daily. it's a daily thing. It's a daily thing. It's getting better. It's, certainly in the UK, it's getting better. It certainly is, and you're making it better. Oh, I, mean, I hope so. Yeah, Gosh, you, you are, and it's um, <laughs> it's admirable, and it's 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 the, the way you're using your platform to drive change makes me want to do that. And I think that's a perfect place to end. <laughs> this has been an absolute Cute. pleasure, Sophie. Thank you. Thank you. And I know our our wine is cooling. I'm not sure if oh, I'm allowed to say that. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm Gemma Greaves, and are you sitting uncomfortably? Is a fresh air production. And the lovely producers are Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh. We're new on the scene, very new, in fact, today. Uh, so if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us and all that other good social stuff. The bigger the following, the more opportunity we have to have the best guests. And I want to have uncomfortable conversations like today with incredible people like Sophie. Thank you so much. Thank you. 